Welcome to my mommy's podcast. Do you love the taste and the benefits of bone broth, but don't love how time-consuming it is to make? With the time you spend sourcing the best ingredients and then simmering it for hours on end on the stove? Kettle and Fire solves that problem with their bone broth. So they use only bones from 100% grass-fed pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones and antibiotics. It's also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. Another great thing about them is they use really eco-friendly minimal packaging and their bone broth is non-perishable. So unlike many bone broths on the market, it ships without the need for refrigeration, which is also much more eco-friendly. It is available in many stores, so definitely check your local area. But if it's not, like it isn't for me, you can order it online and have it shipped to your door, which is what I do. So to check it out and to find out more about why their bone broth is so wonderful, go to kettleandfire.com forward slash wellnessmama. This episode is sponsored by Plant Therapy. There are so many options out there when it comes to essential oils, and I've used a lot of them over the years. Now I most often turn to Plant Therapy because they have a large assortment of organic oils and a whole lot of kid-safe blends, and they also have really good prices. The cool thing is their oils have no additives or synthetic ingredients like a lot of oils do, and they publish their testing results for all of their oils so you can verify the quality. I've talked a lot about the safe use of essential oils, and their KidSafe blends are formulated by Robert Tisserand, who's largely considered one of the foremost experts in essential oil safety, so I feel like I can trust him. If you want to check them out, especially right now, they're running some big sales that are changing daily. Go to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash oils to get all the current discounts. Hello, and welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I'm here today with Meredith Michelli, who is an athlete, a coach, a foodie, and a mom of two. Uh, Her website is her name, and that link will be in the show notes, but she comes highly recommended as a podcast guest, especially in the areas of helping women start or maintain fitness routines, the main mistakes that people make when they jump into fitness, and her answers may surprise you. I'm really excited to chat with her, and I think she's going to provide a lot of really important wisdom for a lot of women, especially those looking to add to their fitness routine. So Meredith, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Katie. I'm so excited to be here with you. Oh, me too. As I said, um, you come highly recommended as a podcast guest, and I think you have a lot of knowledge on a lot of different topics related to fitness and health. So I want to jump right in and start with talking about the common mistakes that people make when it comes to fitness. I think there's like a kind of a big spectrum of those who really have no kind of fitness and know they should to the the marathon moms who have a whole lot of fitness. And I know that you, from what you've written and from what I've heard from uh, the people who recommend you, there can be mistakes made on both ends of that spectrum and even in the middle. So what are some of the common mistakes that you're seeing? Um, Well, I would say one of the first mistakes I see for people that are, are just kind of just getting started um, you know, we call them like just getting off the couch, the couch to 5k couch potato types that know they want to get moving, but have no idea where to start. Um, I think the biggest problem I see there is jumping into too much too soon, jumping in and, um, you know, taking on too much, um, just going instead of listening to their body and maybe starting with walking before getting into running before getting into a half marathon and a marathon, but um, just kind of getting swept up in the excitement of of racing, and then um, you know maybe their body isn't exactly um, in the right spot for it, you know, just at that moment. So I think really learning to um, tune in and assess where they're at right now, and then just build gradually. My approach is always 
just very small steps, one thing at a time so that it can become very sustainable and just feel like a way of life. Um, And so it doesn't feel like a chore and like one more thing on the list to do for women that are already, you know, very busy. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I work with a lot of very, very passionate, very type A athletes who want to do more and more. And for them, it's, it's, you know, more like reining them in a little bit, listening into their body again, and um, finding balance in their workout so that they're not pushing themselves too hard and creating extra stress in their body, which leads to some really chronic um, injuries and can lead to some um, nutritional deficiencies. Um, so again, I guess on both ends, it's, it's finding that balance and, and um, learning how to make your workouts work for you so that it, you feel like it's enhancing your life rather than just adding another thing to do on your, <laughs> on your very long list of to-dos. Absolutely. And you obviously have a very strong background in this. Um, I just touched on your background a little bit in the bio, but um, you're both a coach and an athlete. So take us through your background and how you came to understand all this and have such a a very detailed and close understanding of it. Sure. Um, Well, so a little bit about me. I am a wife and a mom of two little boys, um, holistic health coach and nutritionist and runner and retired triathlete. I did the triathlon thing for years, but um, no longer do it. Um, about 12 years ago, I left what I call a very responsible and very stable corporate job and decided to pursue what is my you know, real true passion. And that's, that was to begin a career in health and wellness. Growing up, I'd always been a um, really active kid. I grew up on a farm, so we were always outside just running around doing things. And that was a huge part of my life growing up and led me to become more of an, uh, a runner and athlete as as I grew up, part of my upbringing. And fast forward to 2005, I had left my corporate job and I was in the midst of what I would say was like the peak of my athletic career. Um, I had qualified for the Boston Marathon and I was training for an Ironman, Ironman Wisconsin. Um, I was working as a triathlon and a run coach and helping other people achieve their goals. And everything looked pretty good from the outside. Things were, were you know, churning along. Um, but things started to break down. And in the next couple years after that, life got really crazy, very busy, um, out of balance. Um, you'll hear me say balance a lot because I really think that that is the underlying key to success in a lot of areas. Um, but I was doing an excessive amount of training, um, too much work too little sleep, too much sugar, um, very high stress, and um, just feeling burnt out. And it was, when I look back, that was really a low point of my life, but also a turning point. Um, I went through a separation and a divorce at that time. I was 33. And then, you know, my body started to break down from from all of the, the stress and the training. I actually had a a condition called petechia where the capillaries just sort of burst. And so I was no longer allowed to run at that point. I, you know, mentally was, was going through a lot of challenges and um, struggled with depression at that point and was put on an antidepressant and just did not feel like myself. Um, I was feeling numb and tired and sort of emotionless and it was a dark time. And, but that was also like a turning point time. So it was through that, darkness that I did a lot of searching and I sought out like a better way. I knew that there had to be a better way to to live and to train and to eat and to put it all together. 
And it was through that that I found um, the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and I became a study to become a certified health coach. And it was through that process that I healed myself um, and then was able to apply those things from nutrition to lifestyle to fitness and training to self-care and be able to help others with going through similar struggles. So it was through that I went on to do the work that I love. And for, so for the last eight years, I've been an integrative nutrition health coach and um, went on to work at Lifetime Fitness and um, was the head of nutrition endurance and endurance coaching there uh, before I started my own business where I do personal and online group coaching for women who want to take the next step in improving their own health and fitness. So I've made all the mistakes and I've seen all the mistakes. And really at my core, my mission is to help women reclaim their health and happiness and to do it in a way that's sustainable, just one small step at a time. So that's a little bit about my journey. I think that's so powerful and so helpful to anyone listening to understand um, that you have had your own struggle and your own journey on this. I think it's hard sometimes to uh, feel like you can learn from someone who has never been through that. I always like laugh at the, like, not laugh, but I think it's funny when, um, you know, there's trainers that are just genetically, like that's, they genetically are, and it wouldn't matter if they worked out or not, but they credit like their physique to all these things that they do when realistically they kind of won the gene lottery in that sense. And it's great for them. And I'm grateful that they did. But at the same time, I love that you have been through it and you've had your own struggles with it because I think that makes your, your teaching even more powerful. And I think a lot of women, kind of turn to fitness mainly for weight loss. And um, I know that there's a lot of other benefits and I would say that are much more important than weight loss when it comes to any kind of fitness. But that's definitely a, a focus for a lot of people. And at least the spectrum I see, because I just go to the gym and I take all my calls walking on the treadmill and I do weights and that kind of stuff. But the cycle I see is like people come in all gung-ho, ready to go. They work out like crazy for two weeks and then I never see them again. And I think it's because of their just using it to lose weight. And I, I know that you have talked about this a lot. So what do you see as the biggest mistakes people make when they kind of jump into this to try to lose weight? Um, well, I think they're looking for the results and instead of the actual journey. And so when your motivation is weight loss, it feels like a place of not, of being not enough. It's like a very negative approach to, to your health. And so with any of the, the women that I work with or come into contact with, any type of nutrition or health coaching begins with how do I want to feel? What do I want my life to look like? How do I want to show up every day? What kind of energy do I want to have? How's my mood going to be? You know, and it, when you start to look at it from that way, rather than just specifically a number on the scale or, you know, a, a, an arbitrary gene size that you're trying to get to, there's, there's just a different, uh, a different mindset. It's one of abundance. It's like I get to, uh, exercise and move my body in the way that I want to, or I get to add in these wonderful nourishing foods that are going to make my body feel better and give me the energy that I'm looking for. So it's a mindset of, of allowing yourself more and reclaiming what really is yours. I think at our essence, you know, we all want to be happy and healthy and we deserve that and we can be that. And our bodies are incredibly resilient when we create the environment that allows it to flourish rather than taking away. And I think when you start any gym routine or diet routine, and we can talk about diets and collecting the diet mentality that is so pervasive, but when you start from a place of, of wanting less of yourself and just making yourself smaller, it doesn't feel good because that's not really 
who we are. We just want to be our best selves, whatever that, you know, however that number may fall on the scale, but we want to feel good. And so we start to make choices thinking about what do we get to do in order to, to feel this way versus what I can't have and what I'm restricted from and what I have to do on the treadmill in order to see a number shrink. Um, it's just a really, you know, it's a more positive way of looking at things versus pretty negative and, and very unsustainable, as you said, you know, you can go at it for a week or two and then you don't see the results that you want. You're looking for this external arbitrary number to change and it's not happening quickly enough. And then you fall back into old habits. So that's, that is something that I see quite a lot of. Yeah, absolutely. And I see it from the nutrition side too. It's like people using food or using fitness to punish themselves and like giving themselves only a tiny bit of food, which is your fuel, and then wondering why their thyroid freaks out or their adrenals freak out. And I know you see that in fitness too, probably people who um, kind of take it to the other extreme and they jump in hoping to have these amazing results without working up to it. Like, again, I don't want to say like extreme fitness is harmful. It's just you have to get there the right way. And so they jump in and do all this really extreme fitness and really extreme calorie restriction and then their body revolts. I mean, do you see that in what you do as well? I do a lot. And I would say that's probably one of the the biggest problems that I see amongst women um, when they start out trying to lose weight. I mean, that's what, when, when I begin working with them, it's always, I'm trying to lose weight. It's not usually saying I'm trying to get healthier. I want to feel X, but they're looking for a weight loss. And so they begin with a mindset of being overly restrictive, having sort of a diet mentality. I think for too long, paying attention to external noise, paying attention to someone saying, try this or do this, this is better for you, or this is your magic bullet. And not, again, not listening to their own body, not trusting themselves and their own intuition, which really does guide us in, into, you know, what's the right foods for us and how much is enough. And I, I always come back to the um, the sort of prescriptive 1200 calorie diet <laughs> prescription that a lot of people have. A lot of women, I don't know if it's from, you know, years of flipping through fitness magazines or listening to different diet gurus or commercials where it's like they have in this mind that 1200 calories is like about the right amount to eat if they're trying to lose weight. And if they go anywhere above that, then they begin to feel guilt and shame. And for any woman who is an active woman, you know, a, a mom who's like chasing after toddlers, or if you're someone who, you know, is just going to the gym a couple of days a week, or just walking around your block, I mean, you're an active woman. 1,200 calories is, I'm just going to put it out there, is not enough for you. And for most women, that is below their resting metabolic rate. And, and our resting metabolic rate, or RMR, is the minimum number of calories that our bodies need just to function, just to like lay in bed and do nothing all day but stare up at the ceiling and, you know, for our body to do respiration and digestion, we need X amount of calories. And for most women, it's above 1200 calories. So if they're following a prescriptive diet saying eat 1200 calories to lose weight, there's three negative effects that happen to our body. And I see this happening way, way too often, even with younger women starting at, you know, um, younger girls starting to diet earlier. But what happens is first our, our, as you mentioned, thyroid our thyroid output decreases. So it's almost like our body adjusts the lack of nutrition and nutrients and calories and turns that thermostat down 
Um, secondly, we start to cannibalize and lose lean muscle tissue, which is so critical for our overall metabolism. And then thirdly, um, our overall metabolic rate starts to slow down and tick down. And so when you end that 1200 calorie diet that is not sustainable. Now you've, you've just lowered your metabolic rate a bit. And so when you go back to eating your old way, the weight hangs on like for dear life because it doesn't, it's not getting a steady stream of nutrition and, and uh, nutrients. And so it's, it's wants to keep everything and like make it very sticky. And then when you do then go try the next diet that your you know friend at the gym tells you to do, now your metabolism is lower and it makes it that much harder to lose any weight. So you see that very typical pattern of yo-yo dieting that's so frustrating for women and, and gets them into um, a lot of pretty negative health situations and body image issues as well. For sure. And it's probably also why you always see that statistic that the biggest correlator of if you're going to gain weight over the long term is if you're on a diet, like it actually damages your metabolism because the body's smart. And if you start depriving it, it says, okay, cool, this is the new normal. I have to learn how to live in this window. And it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Our body is always, you know, it's always trying to find balance. It's trying to make it like it's trying to make things easier for us. So if it's seeing like a lack of nutrition, not enough fuel coming in every day consistently, it's going to lower everything. It's going to, you know, try to try to survive and try to get by with what we're giving it. And, you know, uh, there's just a lot of negative consequences that come with that. And, you know, that what I see a lot, too, is like a pendulum swinging pattern of the more diet. And there's actually a great quote from this this author, Janine Roth. And she says, for every diet, there is an equal and opposite binge. And so if you're hanging out in the diet area for too long, there's going to be a a swing to the to the overeating and and the binge side of things. And that's just the body seeking balance. Um, It's lacking balance. And so it's looking for it on on the other end of the spectrum. So just just really trying to shift the mindset away from dieting, away from restriction and into a more abundant trusting of our body mindset where we're adding in whole foods, real foods, things that our bodies recognize and that set off the right pattern of of hormones and balance in our body is uh, a really good place to start. I agree. And I, it makes me crazy when I hear people talk about just like calories in calories out and it's all math because it's not because math ignores hormones. (laughs) And I feel like on a low calorie diet, when you think of just calories as a number, instead of the type of fuel it is, people tend to actually consume a lot of either sugar or sugar alternatives because they're low calorie and they have no fat and like all these things that make them actually diet wise look great if that's your focus with the calories. Um, But then we're seeing all these huge problems related to excess sugar consumption. So I want to hear your take because I know I'll admit that I take an extreme position for me, not necessarily for my children, but for me personally, I don't eat sugar in any form right now. I don't eat maple syrup. I don't eat honey. I don't eat stevia, which is just my personal choice because I feel best that way. Yeah, definitely an extreme opinion. But where do you fall on the sugar spectrum and what are you seeing with women? So I'm with you. I'm no sugar, I, and I, I applaud you for like coming out strong on on no sugar because I think that's a right now that that's like a brave thing to say because most people say, oh, everything has to be in moderation. Everything in moderation. And how can you not have honey or cannot? How can you not have maple syrup or stevia? So for me personally, well, I I, I applaud that you know for your own body that it doesn't make you feel good, and that's why you 
abstain. And it's totally healthy and acceptable to be an abstainer of something that doesn't, that you know, doesn't make you feel good. Um, I think we live in a culture where, where everything is supposed to be in moderation. A lot of dietary guidelines are even that everything in moderation. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I think there are definitely foods that people cannot moderate well, and that if they get into a little bit, then it turns into too much. So I think what you have to do is really know yourself, know if you are better off as an abstainer versus a moderator um, around sugar. I mean, sugar is such a huge problem. I mean, it, it is, we are at epidemic rates of, of type two diabetes and even getting younger and younger for children too. So some, a, a big stand has to be taken against sugar if we're ever going to like turn this around. But when I work with women, um, I try to let them lead a little bit, like see where they're at, where their benchmark is. Like if they're someone that drinks soda every day and has sugary cereal for breakfast, for them to go to no sugar at all is going to be a really big leap. It's going to take a lot of work. And so I find that they, they tend to get the best results when we go gradually we start to take out the biggest offenders first. We get rid of the sodas and the sports drinks, like really sugary beverages. I think that's the, the great place to start cutting right there. But then I give them a guideline and I tell them, you know, for a woman, we really, our, our pancreas just cannot process much more than 24 grams of added sugar a day. And that's six teaspoons of sugar, which is not a lot really. Um, especially, so I'll have them like keep track for a day what their total added sugar intake was. And they're usually floored by how much is sneaking in and all these hidden forms and their salad dressings, their fat-free salad dressings that they thought was, you know, a healthy choice. And then their afternoon coffee, their um, vanilla latte that has 35 grams of added sugar right there. And so it puts them over the top for the day. Um, energy bars, which a lot of women just kind of keep in their purse and, and use for fuel running from one place to the next, but looking at the added sugars in there. Um, yogurts, fruit yogurts, which have anywhere from you know, 20 to sometimes 30 grams of, of added sugar there. So we, we take a snapshot, we see where they're at, and then we start peeling away and start looking for lateral shifts that we can make that's going to pull out that excess sugar and um, provide them with more nutrition. Because like you said, you know, whether it's artificial sugar or, or sugar, there's no nutrients in it. They're getting like nothing from it and just giving, getting um, a quick surge of energy and then a real drop right after that. So it's replacing those um, sort of dead foods and, and replacing them with, with foods that are high in nutrients that are going to give them um, the energy that they need to, to get through their busy days. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many problems that come with sugar consumption, which is why I take it a really extreme mm -hmm. stance. And I will say like my kids do eat maple syrup and honey and they naturally have a higher carbohydrate need than adults do because of their high um, ATP and like they've got so many processes happening in their body that we don't. Um, but at the same time, like people, it's funny, people get really concerned when they hear me say that, like I'm a horribly unbalanced life for my children. And I'm like, no, sugar, nutritionally, pretty much every food is better than sugar. Like you have no nutritional need for refined sugar whatsoever. And I would even go so far as to say that 
Um, I mean, if you look at the health effects, I would say sugar is worse than smoking in a lot of ways, especially the amount that a lot of people consume because it's having an immediate negative impact on your body. But on the other end of the spectrum, you also have women who in the name of cutting out the sugars also cut out like all carbs completely. And I think there's kind of extremes on the spectrum, but Right now with the rise of the popularity of ketosis and having like a zero carb diet, um, at least from my side, I can see the potential for problems there with the thyroid and the adrenals, especially in women because of our hormone needs. But um, what are you finding with women when it comes to carbs? I'm finding that they're very confused, (laughs) that they, um, in a sense, you know, are, are hearing from a lot of different sources that they need to remove carbs, low carb, no carb. And now, you know, the the more extreme, much more extreme ketogenic diet, as you mentioned, which um, I keep seeing people coining it as like the new paleo. And it's this new trendy thing that, you know, we're just going to go super high fat and, and very low protein and, and minimal, minimal carb. And I think there's an application for it um, in very specific medical conditions for epileptic seizures and for cancer patients who are um, trying to shrink um, certain types of brain tumors. There's really good research on that that's showing the positive effects on that. But I do not think that it's something that can be sort of prescribed or recommended across the uh, board for, for everyone, in particular women, as you mentioned, not great for women. I get people asking me about it almost every day. Hey, what do you think about the new, should I go try the ketogenic diet? And um, what do you think about like 80% fat and cutting out all, all carbs? I think it's really asking for problems in the long run. I think if we are leading with health, sustainable health for the long term, it, it's not the path to go down for a few reasons. I mean, for women, women especially, we we need a certain amount of carbohydrate to feel good for our for our hormonal balance, for our brain health. You know, women that that tend to go too overly restrictive on their carbs, again, the body responds, the body balances itself out by it, it sees it as a perceived stressor. Not enough carbs or no carbs is a stressor on the on the female body. And so the body is going to be re- responding with putting out more cortisol. It feels the stress, so it responds with the, with the stress hormone of cortisol, and then it also will dump excess blood sugar into the bloodstream to try to find it, you know, what's missing. Um, so you'll sometimes even see an uptick in um, blood glucose numbers when you're going very low carb, which is the exact opposite intention of what people are trying to do when they go low carb. Um, a lot of times there's going to be disrupted sleep and then, you know, just a, a, a kind of unsustainable and, and low adherence to this, this type of diet. And what I see from a practical standpoint is, you know, um, a woman will say, oh, I'm going to go low carb and shun all fruit, you know, won't eat any berries or apples or um, brown rice at all with any dinners. But then later in the day or the next day, she finds herself binging on ice cream or pizza or chips. And it's just like, again, that, that looking for balance because it's not getting it nutritionally from, from an unsustainable diet. So I think, you know, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion and an all or nothing mentality around carbohydrates. A lot of times people will say, you know, when they're cutting out carbs, they think they're just cutting out bread and pasta and muffins and bagels. And that's, you know, refined. And so they don't need that, which is, which is right. But actually carbohydrates comes from vegetables and 
fruits and whole intact grains. And, you know, if you are, if you have a gluten sensitivity or if you are celiac, you absolutely don't want gluten in your grains, but there are gluten-free whole intact unrefined grains that can be a really nice part of someone's diet in the right amount. Um, so I think, you know, really learning to distinguish between the refined, highly processed sugary carbs that we don't need, the cold cereals, the enriched breads and chips and granola bars, things like that, but then not just making a blanket, you know, no to all of the types of, of whole um, carbohydrates that come in vegetables, fruits, and, and those whole intact grains that are uh, a really nice part of a, of a balanced diet, especially for women. Yeah, absolutely. And and shifting to start thinking, like you said, of food as fuel instead of just a number or a calorie or especially something to be demonized or even with a superfood, something to be exalted like that. I think we really, that would heal a lot of the problems we see in society with food if we shifted to thinking of it as fuel and how can we properly fuel our bodies um, not like what can we not eat because it's bad. And I think that, especially with working out, that's a really important distinction. And uh, I'd love to hear you talk about the ways that you recommend people fueling their bodies for different types of workouts. And obviously one of the most common is protein powder. So, um, but there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of really bad ingredients in protein powder. So what do you recommend on those? Yeah, they're, oh goodness, they're, you can do, be a really good food detective in the protein powder aisle at the grocery stores because it's overwhelming. There's so many of them. Um, and yeah, when people start working out, they usually opt to, to have a protein powder as uh, just a convenient and quick uh, source of, of, um, of protein to support their diet. First thing I usually say is you don't, you absolutely don't need protein powder. It, it's not a necessity. Um, if you're getting sufficient protein from whole foods, there's absolutely no need for it. Um, and most people are getting sufficient protein, uh, even though they think that they're not. I think that's another area of confusion where we're constantly being bombarded, thinking more protein, more protein. We're usually doing okay with protein, but what we really need is more vegetables. <laughs> but that's, maybe that's a side topic. Um, so I always say real food first, that protein powder, powders are a supplement. They're not a primary food. Um, but then if you do know that you want something to have as a convenient option, quick and convenient, um, look at the three different sources of, of protein powder. So there, you can basically put them into three buckets. There's like plant-based proteins, there's dairy-based proteins, and then the newer um, addition to the protein powders are, are the bone broth proteins, which are pretty interesting. Um, so the plant-based ones are going to be usually some type of uh, combination of chickpeas or lentils or brown rice or a, a grain that's been refined and, or sprouted in, in some of the best ones. And then they'll add, the, amongst any of the protein powders, they'll add in um, the, the good ones, I call like the high quality ones, will have extra ingredients like um, dehydrated veggies in there. Um, like the Vega protein powder has six servings of veggies in there. Um, Garden of Life is another um, another brand that has good greens thrown in there, um, probiotics, omega-3 fatty acids, things like that. Um, if you go to a dairy-based protein, which is probably you know one of the most popular ones, a lot of people like whey protein because it's very absorbable um, very quickly. But what I would recommend in that area is to go with the grass-fed organic if possible, um, just so that you're not getting 
all the extra um, pesticides, um, chemicals that you don't want in your protein powder. And then the third is the bone broth protein, which is an, a nice addition with some really great benefits there, collagen and, and good source protein um, as well. So the things that you want to look out for and avoid if you're scanning the ingredient labels of your protein powders and just nix them right away because they're, they're going to be a marker, a red flag for a low quality protein powder overall. So anything that has artificial sweeteners like Splenda, Sucralose, Erythritol is another one that that um, is a really common ingredient in a lot of protein powders as well as energy bars, um, which has been shown to cause gastric distress, which you definitely don't want, especially if you're in the middle of training or in the middle of racing. Um, anything with artificial flavors, artificial colors, preservatives, or inflammatory fats, um, particular vegetable oils that are added in there um, that are pro-inflammatory. And then stevia, that's a tricky one. It's like if you don't, there are, like I will use um, a protein powder, a plant-based protein powder that has stevia, and I'm not crazy about stevia. I don't r- recommend it like it's a healthy healthy food at all. I mean, it's it's very, very sweet. It's not natural to be having that much sweetness every day. But if you use protein powder on occasion, I think stevia is okay if it's from a good source, um, you know, if it doesn't cause you to have a lot of um, sugar cravings. Some people do notice that when they have stevia regularly, they do then crave sugar later on. So if that's you, then you would want to avoid it. But overall, I think that's if you need if you need a protein powder that doesn't have sugar in it, I think stevia is probably the way to go. Agreed. And I would also mention on the like the notion of the bone broth protein to be really careful about sourcing. Like I think it's a great option, but there are some people out there um, on the market that are selling like a non-organic, non-pastured, non-grass-fed bone broth protein and marketing it as natural, but that doesn't mean organic. And a lot of those are coming from factory farm chickens and cows. You got to be really careful of that. Make sure it says organic and grass-fed because I think you're right. It's a great option. Just make sure your sourcing is really good. Just like anything, make sure the sourcing is really, really good. Absolutely. Yeah. Great point. And natural. Natural means nothing. Exactly. (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, unlabeled. So you're absolutely right. 100% grass-fed and organic is would be the key words to look for with that. Yeah. It's sad. I think almost in some ways, if you just see the word natural and nothing else on a product, if anything, like research it more because that typically is used a lot to kind of make products that aren't as quality source look like they are. So you have to watch for that. Do you love the taste and the benefits of bone broth, but don't love how time consuming it is to make? With the time you spend sourcing the best ingredients and then simmering it for hours on end on the stove, Kettle and Fire solves that problem with their bone broth. So they use only bones from 100% grass-fed pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones and antibiotics. It's also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. Another great thing about them is they use really eco-friendly minimal packaging and their bone broth is non-perishable. So unlike many bone broths on the market, it ships without the need for refrigeration, which is also much more eco-friendly. It is available in many stores, so definitely check your local area. But if it's not, like it isn't for me, you can order it online and have it shipped to your door, which is what I do. So to check it out and to find out more about why their bone broth is so wonderful, go to kettleandfire.com forward slash wellnessmama. This episode is sponsored by Plant Therapy. 
There are so many options out there when it comes to essential oils, and I've used a lot of them over the years. Now I most often turn to Plant Therapy because they have a large assortment of organic oils and a whole lot of kid-safe blends, and they also have really good prices. The cool thing is their oils have no additives or synthetic ingredients like a lot of oils do, and they publish their testing results for all of their oils so you can verify the quality. I've talked a lot about the safe use of essential oils, and their KidSafe blends are formulated by Robert Tisserand, who's largely considered one of the foremost experts in essential oil safety, so I feel like I can trust him. If you want to check them out, especially right now, they're running some big sales that are changing daily. Go to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash oils to get all the current discounts. So from a fitness perspective, um, there's always all this debate of what is the most effective workout, what is best for the female body. And obviously, I think there's a huge amount of personalization there. But let's talk about cardio versus like, for instance, lifting heavy weights. And there's obviously different benefits to both with cardiovascular versus like the muscle and joint benefits of um, and bone building benefits of weights. But um, what do you find most women do the best with? Um, I think most women do best with, um, well, first of all, I think finding something that they, that they enjoy doing, (laughs) I think beyond like the health benefits, just something that they don't dread doing and that they will do on a regular basis is probably the best place to start because it'll be sustainable and they'll, they'll like doing it and they'll get joy from, from their, the way that they're moving their body. Um, but from a physiological standpoint, if I'm designing a training plan for someone, I'm going to do a lot of strength like functional strength and core strength. Um, I think for too many women, um, that becomes sort of a, a side note, like they'll, they, they love to get their run in or they love to ride their bike or whatever, which is great too. But then their overall functional strength becomes like the last 15 minutes of their workout. And I don't think that's enough. So I think having, um, you know, specific days where you're doing full body strength, not just sitting on a machine and doing like a bicep curl or you're really isolating just one movement, but, um, you know, involving the whole body and using body weight, um, doing squats and lunges and planks and push-ups and, uh, you know, burpees, you know, just like the kind of basic things that work our whole body, that get our glutes involved, get the prime movers, get our hips involved, um, and make us feel just functionally stronger, better posture, um, you know, just, just showing up like with a a body that feels more functional every day. So I think strength is a huge component. And then cardiovascular is very important too. I'm a, I'm a triathlon and run coach, so I can't not talk about cardiovascular, but I do think that a lot of women do too much cardiovascular um, exercise and in the wrong training zone, meaning they don't, they're kind of in no man's land where they're going at a heart rate that's hard for them, it feels hard, like their their mouth is dropping open and they have to breathe heavily when they're running, but it's like that steady state that is not really burning that much fat and is not really getting them up into a high enough heart rate training zone where they're changing their hormones and increasing human growth hormone and um, increasing the calorie burn later in the day. So instead, it's like too much. It's this kind of hard, but not super hard. Um, So what I do for women like that is I try to encourage them to do a good chunk of time at at a at a easy pace where it feels like you could go all day. And this could be an easy jog. It could be just a walk. Like so for a woman who is who is under a lot of stress and wants to lose 
weight and wants to lose belly fat specifically, I would not advise her to run. I would advise, like, let's say, and she doesn't have that much time either. So she's at her son's um, little league game and she's got an hour to kill. Instead of sitting and watching the game or jogging around the park, I would just have her walk, just a brisk walk where she's really, she's completely aerobic. Um, She's not burning any sugar during the workout. She's burning all fat. And she's, more importantly, she's decreasing her cortisol level that is probably too high if she's under a lot of stress. Um, So doing that, and then maybe at each of the four corners of the park, she stops and does like a minute of a plank. And at the next corner, she does like, um, you know, 30 seconds of squats. And at the next corner, she does 30 seconds of push-ups. Like that is the type of workout that's going to lower her stress, lower her body fat, make her feel good when she's done, not make her feel sore and not make her feel like she's craving sugar as soon as she's done. Um, and then getting the whole body involved with some, some, uh, you know, functional strength that just in little bursts. I think that, um, too often as women, we are looking for like, we think we need like a window of time. We're looking for that perfect opportunity to work out that, you know, we need an hour, an hour and a half, and we have to get to the gym. And and realistically, that just doesn't happen for a lot of us with kids and jobs and all sorts of responsibilities. So if we can just start to sneak in, you know, little bursts here and there, that all, um, it really does add up. And um, we just want to move a whole lot during the day and then exercise just enough, you know, not not making it excessive, not making it feel like you're, you're stressing your body more by fitting in that, that long, hard cardio workout, but just making it work for you. And then not being afraid to do like little short bursts are of high intensity interval training um, are a great, great way to maximize your time and maximize your fitness. So if you're like a mom with a, a little kid in it, who's still in a jogging stroller, I used to do this workout with my little one when he was about two and um, we would sprint like well, I do like a 10 minute easy jog to warm up and then we would sprint like as fast as I could go for 20 seconds. And the key is like you have to go as fast as you can go like someone is chasing you and you get that heart rate way, way up to that almost you know high zone four, almost zone five where your jaw is dropping open. And that's where you're making some some big changes in, in terms of human growth hormone and um, balancing blood sugar and um, are increasing the calorie burn later in the day. So I would do a 20 minute, 20 second sprint and then like a minute, just walk, walk, let that heart rate come down and then do it again. And I would do six repeats of those. And my little guy, Wyatt, would just think it was the greatest thing. <laughs> go faster, go faster. And so just, it doesn't take that long. You know, it's not an hour workout, but it's just a short and purposeful. You get that heart rate up and then you let it recover. That's a really great way to, to efficiently use your time and move your body in a way that feels good to you and that's that's doing something good for you in the long term. For sure. And there's some really cool research out there about how those really short but super high intensity workouts can actually outperform like just slower, like lower cardio over the long term or that at the very least you should have both. Um, and how like for most people, a marathon is not the optimal workout. In fact, there's a lot of oxidative stress that comes with working out too much. And um, I love that you said we should just move, like maybe exercise less and move more. I had a podcast guest in the past, Katie Bowman, uh, who's a biomechanist. And she said, 
like most people, even athletes these days are actually very sedentary because they work out maybe one or two or three hours a day, but on paper, scientifically, they're sedentary because they're sitting the rest of the day. So we should be doing things like moving and squatting and like basically just watch your two-year-old and do what they do and and you'll get it figured out. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. They never stop. I just, I just was at a nutrition conference and one of the lectures was, it was sitting is killing you. I mean, that was the title of the lecture. And as the speaker was giving his lecture, everybody like slowly stood up at their table and everyone was standing at the back of the room by the, by the end of it, because it is, I mean, we are not just, we are as humans, we are designed to be moving constantly. And the, the fittest athletes that I see sometimes are just working really hard in a window of one to two to three, depending on their level, you know, four hours a day. And then the rest, they're sedentary, they're recovering. And that's, that might be good for the, you know, the specificness that specificity of their sport, but I don't know that it's good for our overall health and our, our overall um, long-term wellness. So marathon training, I've done many marathons. I'm not sure that I'll do another marathon in the future because of the, the strain on my body and the oxidative stress that you, that you mentioned. Um, I just think that there's, there's a lot of other options. And, and sometimes when you're starting a fitness routine, you see that as like the goal, the ultimate goal. I hear a lot of women who don't recognize that they are runners unless they run a marathon. Like they'll be training for a half marathon and someone will say, oh, just a half? You're just doing a half marathon. And so then they think they have to do a whole marathon. And for, for a lot of women, you know, it's, and I'm not like, Running is a huge part of my life. I absolutely love it. Um, it's, a, it's a great stress reliever. It's just a wonderful thing in a lot of ways. But there's downsides to it, too. And I think we have to be really realistic with, with the type of stress that it's putting on our body. And we have to support our body in a way to maintain that. And also take a, be really honest with if, if it's the right time in our life to be taking on that additional toll and that additional stressor. Um, it's just, you know, sometimes it's not the right time. That's a good point. Like, you know, if you're newly pregnant and you've never run before, like don't, that's not when you should start trying to run a marathon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I love that you said that about some of the best athletes that you've seen that they work out and have their specific program, but they also just are always moving. Because a friend of mine comes to mind, Ben Greenfield, who if you're listening, he also has a great podcast you should listen to. But every time I see him at a health conference, I like have to joke him and laugh because he's always in the back of the room and he's not even just standing. He takes it to the next level. He's like squatting and lunging and like doing... <laughs> doing all these crazy stretches he literally never stops moving um but he's also considered like one of the like best athletes out there so I think that's such a good point like don't make it a lifestyle just like a diet don't make it one thing you do make it part of who you are and I think that makes it so much easier but let's talk a little bit more about the oxidative stress and stress and the nutritional standpoint because Obviously, some exercise is good, but even any exercise, you're going to have a little bit of that, and that's not a bad thing, but there are things we can do to kind of mitigate that. So what do you recommend for people, especially those who really do, like you, love the cardio and love the running? Um, what can they do to make sure they're protecting their body while they do it? Yeah, so if you are a cardio junkie, runner, triathlete, endurance person, listen up. <laughs> this is for you. So we, we want to flood the body with antioxidant-rich foods after a a long, hard workout. When we do any type of steady state, long cardio exercise, we're creating that oxidative stress. We're creating free radicals in our body, which 
are unstable and unpredictable. And when they clump together and we have too many of them, they can become very problematic. Um, so I think the first place to start is to shift the mindset from I did X, like I did, and I see this all the time with triathletes, I did a three hour bike ride and a one hour run. So I deserve to run through the Burger King, Burger King drive through and get the, the, you know, cheeseburger fries and a milkshake. Like I earned it. I'm looking at my Garmin and I see I burnt 2000 calories. So I need to replace that. And I think that if, if we start there and start shifting our thinking from, um, I did X, I deserve Y. And the Y is usually a, a crappy processed meal. Um, if instead we say, I did X, I did, I just did this huge workout. My body just put out a huge amount of work and exertion. And so I choose to refuel this body with X, Y, and Z because it makes me feel a certain way. And so I have like a recovery, a blueberry spicy um, antioxidant recovery smoothie that is like my go-to. Anytime I do anything over an hour workout, um, I know that I've created oxidative stress. It's going to be um, a variety of berries, blueberries, cherries, um, tart cherries are really great for, for anti-inflammation after a hard workout. I'll throw a half a frozen banana in there and um, coconut milk and two big handfuls of, of whatever leafy green I have in the fridge, um, a tablespoon of raw cacao nibs for the magnesium. Um, and then I'll throw in some anti-inflammatory spices, which I think are underutilized and, and we don't really yet under, you know, appreciate how, how beneficial they can be um, for healing the body. So cinnamon and ginger, turmeric, and a little bit of black pepper to make that turmeric more bioavailable. Um, and then I'll do a scoop of a high quality, I, I use a, like a plant-based protein powder and blend it all up and drink that down and try to get it in within that 45 minute window so that I can help the body start to repair. Changing that that mindset from I'm helping my body repair versus I did this big workout so I get to like refuel and indulge in all these these things. You, you kind of want to thank your body for what it just did, and and the best way to do that is to reach for the antioxidant rich whole foods that are going to help mitigate some of the oxidative stress that that you just put your body through. Yeah, such important information. And I think also, like, of course, with that, like getting lots of rest and letting your body have recovery time is huge. Um, but I want to make sure that we don't run out of time before I let you talk about um, where people can find you online. Because I, I know that a lot of people may have follow up questions. And I know that you also work directly with people. So um, where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me on Facebook at Meredith Fiselli, um, on Instagram at Meredith Fiselli, and then on my website, which is just MeredithFiselli.com. And yeah, I've got some new programs that I'm excited to release and I'm going to do some group coaching. And um, so if anyone yeah, wants to reach out or has follow up questions, feel free to, to ping me. Awesome. Well, Meredith, thanks so much for the time. I think that this uh, interview has been really helpful for a lot of people, especially those who are trying to like really get into the fitness, but want to do it the right way. And you have some great resources as well. So all those, um, your website and your Facebook will be linked in the show notes for anyone who wants to find those as well. But thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. My pleasure. It's great talking with you. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Healthy Moms podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? 
Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.